This morning's sermon text reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 3 through 18. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, JD, and thank you to Kyle and Rachel for that very excellent song. The problem whenever they do special music is I have to go next. So I just feel like, oh, this is not so great. But as you know, we have been working our way slowly through the gospel according to John. We are trying to figure out exactly what it means that Jesus is the Christ. We have been in John for over one year now, and we are about halfway through. And so I thought, yes, it probably would be okay if we took a one-week break from John, at least a few times a year, that the pastors here at Redeemer we try and give a sermon just to remind us of what we are called to do here in the city of Detroit, that we are called to be on mission in the city. It was this past week when Pastor Dan and I got together for our weekly pastor's meeting. We did a very quick devotional on the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, which is the chapter on the church. We just made some very quick observations about what the church is called to do. And so we noticed things like the church is called to help Christians grow and to do discipleship. We noticed how some churches are more pure, some are less pure, but even still, God is going to see his church through to the very end. It was all very, very encouraging. And then one thing stuck out to me in particular, and it was that the church is to gather people from all around the world don't believe that God is just the God of our city or of our country, but he's actually a global God, and the role of the church is to gather people from all over the world to worship Jesus Christ. 
And that means, by implication, our job, our mission is to get the word out. Now, of course, we are called to get the gospel to the very ends of the earth, but it would make sense, since we are ministering here in the city of Detroit, that before we talk about the ends of the earth, we ought to start with our very own city. And that is what this morning is about. How can we become motivated to really get the gospel into the city? From the very beginning of this church, it has always been very clear that one of our main goals is to get the gospel to the citizens of Detroit. And yet, even though we say that often and it is repeated on all of our flyers and brochures that this is our third love here at Redeemer, we are very quick to forget. And even as I was thinking about that this this past week, I I wonder if it's not always so much that we forget, because I I think I could ask you at any point, what is the third love of Redeemer? And you would say, oh, the the third love is that we would love the city of Detroit. I, I don't think we always forget. Things that we just, we get comfortable. We, we, we get comfortable because we have such an amazing church. I just finished up the new members class. We're going to be taking in 15 or so new members. And, and these are amazing people. And you're going to love them. And they're going to fit right in with us. And I was telling these number of new members that we actually get along as a church. That last week at the picnic, we, we really enjoy one another. I, I don't sense schism or fighting. We, we are a church that genuinely loves one another, and praise God, because I have heard of other churches where that is not the case. And so in no ways are we saying, well, let's be more divisive so that we would start doing ministry. It's as an overflow out of our love for one another, let's get on fire to do mission in the city of Detroit. Because what so often happens in good churches is there's so many amazing people, and there's good activities, and there's our friends and our family. We just get so comfortable, we're not motivated to get out into the world. And so on a somewhat regular basis, we try to give a message about the mission of the church, and this will be one of those Sundays. We are going to take a break from John to talk this morning about gospel ministry in the city. And now when you think about gospel ministry, the person that usually comes to your mind first is the Apostle Paul. Nobody can minister the gospel like Paul. Paul is this former persecutor of the church, converted to Christianity. He's the author of 13 New Testament letters, and he's just this remarkable, seems to have superhuman faith. I mean, no no matter what happens, Paul is able to press on and do gospel ministry. He's so bold, he's so strong, and he's just so free. So whenever I think of Paul, I always ask of myself, how can I be as free as Paul? Think of all the complaints, all the insults. It it all just seems to to bounce off of Paul. And here I am, I'm nervous about fitting in with the culture. I'm nervous about finances. I'm nervous about what might happen to me or my family or this church in the future. And yet Paul just seems to be free from all of it. It's not that he's ambivalent. It's not that he's naive. He's very much so engaged with the truth of the moment. He knows what is at stake. He feels the pain, and yet even in spite of it, he just seems to be free 
from it all, free for gospel ministry. So that is what this morning is about, being set free from the self for the sake of gospel ministry in the city. We are, of course, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, a bit of background concerning Corinth. It was not a very healthy church. There was lots of fighting. There was lots of immorality. There was lots of division in the church. You name it, and Corinth was probably doing it. It was not a healthy church. And one of the suspicions that Corinth had towards Paul is they just thought he wasn't spiritual enough. They were, they were actually pretty underwhelmed by the Apostle Paul. There was a different group of teachers that were traveling around, and they were known as the super apostles. And these teachers, they're, they're very slick, great rhetoric, they're, they're very charismatic, they're very charming. These teachers seem to have it all together. So imagine, I don't recommend doing this, but middle of the night, you turn on cable TV and you go to the, the so-called Christian station. And you just, on the station, you see this, this very handsome man with this very beautiful wife. Looks like they've been bleaching their teeth for a year straight, and so perfect teeth. I mean, there's glowing teeth, hair slicked back. She has all kinds of makeup on. They have a, a southern accent, so they're, they're very charming. They might say some good things. They likely will say some bad things. But no matter what they say, people are just drawn to them because of their charisma. And that's what these super apostles are. Very slick, very charming, and yet Paul is none of that. From what we can tell, Paul was not a very good-looking guy. We think he had very poor eyesight. His nose was probably likely crooked because he was beaten so often. So he is not very smooth. He's not very charismatic. And of course, his writings and of course his sermons are, are, are very true because they're from God. But in terms of this sort of charismatic, charming nature, Paul did not seem to have any of it. And so this church in Corinth, because they are very young, because they are very vain, they are drawn to these super apostles, and they are not drawn to Paul. And one of their big complaints to Paul is that in the past, he has been compensated for his ministry. And so that's really the discussion behind this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. These Corinthians are upset, and they won't listen to Paul because at some point in the past, he has taken in some form of compensation. So Paul says, do I not have the right to eat and drink? And does Paul, not like any other person, does he not have the right to take a wife? And there are these people that are saying, no, no, Paul, if you're really spiritual, if you're really a super apostle, then you wouldn't be concerned with things like money or food or finding a wife. You ought to be more spiritual than that. What Paul is going to do is he is going to make a clear case that he does, in fact, have a right to these types of things. And so he is going to build a quick argument, starting from the lesser and working towards the greater, for why Paul should be compensated. Argument number one, he starts this in verse seven. Paul says, if you just look at culture and the norms of how society works, it would make common sense that I ought to get paid. And so Paul uses three examples. The first example is that of a soldier. You know, a soldier goes off to war, 
He's risking his life as, as he's walking through the fields. At any point, a soldier can die. He's doing the hardest work imaginable. He is risking his life so that his family and the civilians back home can be protected. Very hard work, quite the service. And I think everybody would assume that, of course, a soldier should get paid. When you're doing that type of work, you ought to be compensated. The, the second example is that of a farmer. So a farmer is out in the field all day in the hot sun, planting and harvesting. And when the harvest comes, it would make sense that the farmer takes the first share of the crops to go back to his family so that his family can eat for the night. And the final example is a shepherd. Same way a shepherd is doing a job, he is watching the sheep, and therefore he ought to be compensated for his service. And so you don't need an advanced degree in economics to understand this principle. When you provide a legitimate service, you have the right to be compensated for it. It's just basic common sense. It's one of the, the, the basic elements of any society, of any culture that makes a society work. You work you get compensated for your job. So Paul says, I just want to be clear here, that I have a right based on our values of society that I have, in fact, this right. Argument number two, Paul, again, because he is escalating, so this is getting more serious. Argument number two, he quotes the Old Testament to confirm that he has this right. He quotes Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 that says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it, it treads on the grain. So again, the, the context here is you have this big ox who is treading the grain, which is a form of work and an act of service towards the farmer. And so this ox is doing very legitimate work, and yet there were some farmers that were very cheap. And so what they did is they would muzzle the ox. So as this mox is stomping on the grain, his mouth would be shut and so that he would not eat any of the grain. And what God says is that no, if this animal is doing some of the work, the animal has the right to eat some of the grain. So we don't, we don't need to get into the PETA or animal rights or anything like that. That, that, that would be far beyond what, what this text is saying. But you say that the God says, care for hardworking animals. So now in the New Testament, Paul says, if God says that you are to care for animals that are working, how much more so should you care for people that are working for the gospel? So that's argument number two. Then argument number three in verse 14, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This is in reference to what Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, that the laborer deserves his wages. And so you have these Corinthians, and they're not listening to Paul. They think Paul's too worldly. They don't think he's spiritual enough, that he's not set apart enough. And Paul's response is just, hey, hold up your Corinth. I want to build a case for you that apostles, ministers, people doing gospel ministry actually have a right to be compensated. This is the common practice of any culture. This is what the Old Testament says. This is what Jesus himself even says, Paul has this right. It's not a right given to him by the Corinthians. It's not voted on. This is not democratic. These are rights given to him by God. 
Now, at, at this point, you might be saying, John, I, okay, uh, I get this, but, 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 but why do you keep just driving this in? But if you want to understand the second half of this sermon, why Paul is so free to do gospel ministry, you have to understand what Paul is saying here. He has a right to this. This is from God. This is a self-evident right. It is explicitly clear in Scripture. It is a right that Jesus Christ himself affirms. Paul has a right to a paycheck. He has a right to be compensated. He has a right to take a wife. It doesn't matter if anybody agrees with it or disagrees it because this comes from God. So this is foundational to this message that Paul does, in fact, have rights. But now the second half of the message It's utterly shocking then, in the second half of verse 12, I want you to look in your bulletin at at that verse. It's the second half of verse 12. Again, Paul has just made this comprehensive argument that he has the right to get paid, and yet he says, nevertheless, we have not made use of the right. And then go down in verse 15, he says it even stronger. But I have not made use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So now, why why would Paul say that? He's in this very typical Paul logical argument, can't fight against it, he's proved his point, but then, After proving his point, he says, but I'm actually not going to take hold of my rights. Even though I have something that God has given to me, I'm actually going to say no to it. So why would Paul say no to what he is entitled to? The quick answer is, again, go with me back to verse 12. Paul realizes that if he is going to receive a benefit from his preaching ministry, that it would actually be a stumbling block in Corinth. So it's wrong, but these Corinthians think Paul is doing ministry to make money. And so Paul says, well, I'll just prove to you that I'm not about that. He says, I'm not going to get paid. I'm not going to take a paycheck. I'm not going to be compensated to show you how free the gospel is. I'm going to do this ministry freely. So that's, that's the easy answer for why Paul rejects his right. But there is a much deeper reason here, and this is the reason for why Paul is so free in life. And it is this point that if we understand it for ourselves, not not just understand it in our heads, but if we actually internalize it in our hearts, then we will be set free for gospel ministry in the city. You see, more than a paycheck, more than a wife, more than being respected in Corinth, more than any other right that God has given to Paul, the single overarching driving theme in Paul's life is he simply wants to preach the gospel. That's verse 15 where he says, I would rather die than not preach the gospel. They can take away every part of Paul's life. They can take his money, they can take his wife, they can take his family, they can take it all away, but he will still be fine. But if you take away the one thing that drives him, the preaching of the gospel, then he is going to wilt to death. 
You see, more than his own rights, Paul's singular ambition is to preach Christ and him crucified. Paul loves the gospel. That's what drives Paul more than anything else. He loves the gospel, and he loves it so much he actually sees ministering the gospel as a reward in and of itself. The gospel, the gospel which is the best news in the world, the gospel which is the story of Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, eternal in age, of the exact same substance of the Father. Jesus, who though he is of the exact same substance of the Father, took on the form of man a man just like one of us, and he lived a life that we can never live. He lived perfectly, perfect obedience in every way. There was never a thought. There was never an action that was impure. He was perfect, and even in his perfection, and even with his active obedience, in the gospel, Jesus suffered silently. Jesus, who would suffer a passive death, like a lamb that is being led to the slaughter. Jesus was led to the cross, where he would hang like a thief and die. And yes, of course, on that cross, Jesus would experience great physical pain as nails are driven into his hands and as he wore a crown of thorns. But the greater pain on the cross was not the physical pain, but the greater pain, and we sang about it this morning, the greater pain is when God would impute to Christ. That means when God would credit to Christ the sins of the people, the sins of the world. And in that moment, Jesus, the perfect man, became the great scapegoat because he took credit for the sins of the world. And as the Father's face turned to Jesus and saw that sin, he poured out his full wrath on Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ on that cross took credit for the sins of the world and drank the cup of God's wrath down to the very bottom. That is what Jesus did on the cross as the lamb, as the scapegoat. But Jesus is not just a regular lamb. He's the God lamb. So as he drank that cup, he actually defeated sin. He defeated death. And so he rose from the grave. And after he rose from the grave, he would then ascend into heaven. And because all that Jesus has done in the gospel, all that he did in his life, all that he did in his death is so finished, is so complete, meaning there is nothing left to be done, Jesus now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's how complete the work is. That's the gospel, and that is what Paul understood. And as soon as Paul, even though he started by hating Jesus, and hating the church, and persecuting the church, and trying to ruin the work of the church, Paul hated Jesus until Jesus, in his mercy, would appear to Paul on the road. And in that moment, when Paul saw the glory of the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ, every single aspect of Paul's being changed. And when he saw the gospel, for all that he is, he said, I am no longer concerned about my rights. I am going to live with this singular ambition to make Christ known in the world. When you come to know Jesus, everything changes. And if you get the gospel, you are going to die to yourself. You will die to your rights. You will die to things that you are even entitled to if it means 
the gospel can go forward. That's what verse 18 means. What's Paul's reward here? Paul's reward is not getting his rights. It's not getting even what he rightfully deserves. No, Paul's great reward is that he gets to preach the gospel free of charge. It's an amazing statement. It's not how we often think. You know, we work so that we can be compensated, so that we can get something in return. When I was in in high school, I worked at Burger King, great great place. I think I made $6 an hour. And the the big perk at working at Burger King is that you got one free meal per shift. And so I would get a, a double Whopper, large onion rings, and a big, large Coke. And so I could eat much more back then. So I'm in high school. I thought I was big stuff here, you know, making the big money, $6 an hour. I'm eating like a king. If you didn't know this, Vanessa and I, we started dating when we were in high school. And so, you know, making six bucks an hour, I think I'm kind of big, take her on a subway date and say, Vanessa, round up for that foot long. You know, this, this one's on me. Don't stop at six. Uh, so I, I, thought I, was, uh, I thought I was big time. I worked at Burger King so that I could get paid so that I could take Vanessa on dates. That was my reward. That that was the only reason I worked at Burger King. If if my boss said to me, John, would you consider assembling Whoppers for no pay, but just simply for the joy of assembling Whoppers? You know, your your joy in working here is that you get to wear the the, the cardboard crown and be an actual Burger King. I would have said, no, I will not consider doing that, and I would have been a sellout. I would have walked across the street and worked at McDonald's, the rivals. I, it, that, that's not what we do. We don't work simply for the joy of doing it. And that's where Paul's different here. What is Paul's main reward? Paul's reward is that he gets to preach the gospel. Gospel ministry is the work, but it is also the reward. And this can be a bit hard to quantify because it's not something that you can really explain. It's more something that you get to experience. But I did think of these college students from Crew that so wonderfully served us this past week. These college students had a right to stay at their homes and to work their normal summer jobs and to make some money. And yet, they made the sacrifice to move into the rectory, which is 100 years old. They slept on mattresses on the floor, and they got to serve kids that are just full of energy in this building that was very hot and sweaty. These college students certainly had a right for much more. And yet, I think they would testify that they got to do something better because they got the reward of ministering the gospel to children. And that ministry in and of itself is a better reward. One of the keys to being set free for radical gospel ministry in the city is that you would see the gospel for all that it is. 
that you would see the cross, that you would see the resurrection, you would see the forgiveness of sins, you would see life in God as possible, that you would see the gospel so that ministering the gospel actually becomes your reward. You're not so much concerned with the benefits of ministry, the perks of ministry. You're not even concerned so much about your own rights that you would see ministry as the reward. You know, it's very interesting if you were to do a study on the book of Acts, Paul is often getting in trouble. And in some moments, Paul will take use of his right as a Roman citizen. At some points he'll say, hey, before you, you know, punch me again, I just want you to know I'm a Roman. And that, that gives him some legal status. There are other points where Paul just remains quiet. And so we ask, well, why are there two seemingly different responses? And the answer is, that underneath both those responses, Paul just wants to do whatever is best for the gospel. So there's going to be moments where Paul will take use of a right, if that's going to help the gospel, if that's going to help the church. There are other moments where Paul is not going to take use of a right, if that is going to help the gospel advance around the world. See, Paul understood that gospel ministry is the reward, and so all other decisions that he make are subservient to gospel ministry. He understood the joy of gospel ministry as being better than his own self-preservation and therefore even his own rights, even his God-given rights are underneath gospel work. We, we live in a world, I think we especially live in a culture that is so consumed with the self. It's all about me, it's about what I deserve and what I didn't get from my parents, what I'm not getting from culture, I'm not getting from the government, it's all about me. And yet here is Paul, he's died to himself, he's died to his rights, because he knows that there is something better out there. Remember that Paul has actually quoted from the Bible about his own rights. He has mentioned a right that Jesus Christ himself even affirm. So these are rights that are written into God's moral world. These are things that ought to generally be true, and yet, even still, he is gripped by something better. Now, I, have, of, of course, am no prophet, but my hunch, and I, I think most people would agree with this, is that it is going to be harder to be a Christian in the coming years. There was a time when Christianity was a little bit more mainstream in our culture. There was a time when the question was not if you will go to church, but what church will you go to? And even the pastorate was a respected career, and that pursuing God was admirable, and that Christian ethics were generally central in our country. And all of that is changing at a rapid pace. So it is going to get harder. We do need to get the, the gospel out. But if in these harder times, if we start the conversation first with, here's what we deserve as a church, it's going to be a losing battle. But if we are able to die to ourselves and die to our rights, and if we think gospel advancement first, so sometimes we speak up, sometimes we stay quiet, then I think the church has some hope. You know, one of the sad realities of our city, the city of Detroit, is that when Detroit started to become unsafe, many of the Christians took off. Now, we could say it, of course, 
a Christian family has a right to safety. And I, I wouldn't fault anybody for trying to get a better life and moving to a safe neighborhood. You, you can't fault anybody for leaving if the main issue is you are pursuing safety. But what happened is that all the Christians took use of their right for safety before thinking gospel first. And there was a real gospel void left behind in the city of Detroit. When we prioritize our rights over gospel ministry, it is always going to lead to the death of the church. But when the church, like Paul, sees the gospel for all that it is, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of a clean conscience, life in God, the promise of the resurrection, in Jesus Christ, you have everything you need. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, you need nothing else. You do not lack. Therefore, be filled up with Jesus. Die to your rise for the sake of ministering in the city. We are called to be on mission in Detroit. We are called to do ministry, and that is going to require gospel thinking first. In my experience, I'm still a relatively young pastor, I I have noticed two main ways to motivate people for ministry. The first way is to motivate by guilt. When I was younger, I wasn't a a Christian at this point, but one of my neighbors invited me to a vacation Bible school. I wasn't a Christian, but I thought this was a great camp. I I really liked it. It was was a lot of fun. I, I do feel like I was genuinely learning some good things, but I'm just a little bit more of a reserved guy when I am singing. So I'm at this camp, and they're singing all the songs. I'm just kind of, you know, sitting there with my hands in my pockets in sort of a, a typical evangelical church. And so a number of the, the youth leaders are, are clapping if you have their hands up in the air. And one of the youth leaders came over to me and said, after all that Jesus has done for you, the least you can do is clap for him. Wow, okay, all right. So, I mean, uh, I I started clapping because I was so freaked out and so scared, and I felt so guilty. And it's often how the church motivates people for mission, for ministry in the city. You know, Jesus left heaven to die for a wretch like you. The least you can do is be a Sunday school teacher. It's like, oh, okay. I mean, so then we get our volunteers and, you know, Jesus had nails in his hands. The least you can do is share the gospel with your neighbor. If we're honest, it's somewhat effective because people usually respond to guilt. But first off, it's just terrible theology. Jesus is not weak. He doesn't need our help. He'll get the mission done with or without us. But then second, and more relevant for this morning, it's just terrible motivation because we're not seeing the reward of ministry. We're not letting the gospel actually transform us. Is it really God honoring ministry if it is done primarily by guilt? And what we see here is that there is an alternative. And so this is the second option for motivating people for ministry. It's Paul's understanding here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's not so much that we have to do ministry because God is desperate, God is weak. It's not so much that we have to do ministry, but that Jesus is inviting us to do ministry. We get to do it. We get to do gospel ministry. We get to go back to our college campus and pray with our friends and step out in faith and trust that God's going to bring some people to know him this upcoming semester. 
We get to pray with our spouses and labor and share the Bible with our little kids. You get to pray with your small group and knock on doors and invite people to your study. You get to see God at work. You get to unite with Christ in his mission. You get to lean into him by faith. You get to see God answering prayers. It's not that you have to do it, but we get to do it. There is nothing better than doing gospel ministry, partnering with Jesus in his mission, seeing God at work. It's one of the best parts of being a pastor is every day I see prayers answered. I see people growing in their faith and I see babies born and being baptized and young couples getting married. You just get to see God. And when you get a glimpse, when you get a hint of gospel ministry, you're gonna want to keep on doing it. You don't have to do it, but you get to. And there is nothing better. So yes, Redeemer, we are here in the city of Detroit. We are called to do ministry beyond our walls. We ought not to become so comfortable that we just only hang out with ourselves. We are called to go into the city. We are called out people. We are called out from the world and called to go back into it. But it is no burden. It is no duty. Even as we sacrifice our very own rights, what a gift that God would give to people like us that we get to share in the ministry of divine reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, we, we do pray for some real heart change here. We, we confess that when we often do ministry out of guilt or fear or obligation, doesn't honor you. So Lord, change our hearts. Help us to be like Paul that sees the gospel for all that it is, the glory of your son on the cross for our sins, the promise of eternal life. Help us to see the gospel in that way so that we might be conformed to see even ministry of the gospel as a reward. We need your help. We need your grace. Be at work in our lives for the sake of the mission. In Jesus' name, amen.